Well, what we're looking at and what we're doing in this module and others that are like this is called systematic theology. Some of you are familiar with that term and others uh, perhaps not, so let me just briefly explain what systematic theology is as opposed to biblical theology. I'll do it by way of a a story here. Uh, I had the opportunity to hike the Appalachian Trail uh, when I was in college. Not the whole thing, 65 miles of it. And if you're in the previous module, I've shared this, but I can't think of a better way to differentiate between these two theologies. And I remember standing on the edge of a cliff just like this one and looking down into the valley of all the things that we were going to encounter that day. And standing up at the top, I got a full circle 360 view of what we were going to experience but I couldn't see down in the details of what we're going to see in the valley you see a little path there you see a river and things like that of things that we were going to see the different leaves and the wildlife that wasn't visible from up above standing up above on the valley is kind of like what systematic theology is about It's where you take a topic from the Bible and you say, what does the whole of the Bible say about any given topic? That's one of your fill-in-the-blanks there if you have notes in front of you. What does the whole of the Bible give us an answer on any given topic? So we look at, okay, what does the Bible say about God the Father? And we look at the whole Bible to answer that question. Where biblical theology says, what does this one passage say? What does this one passage teach me about God? That is the going down into the valley and seeing things up close. And even looking at the story of the Bible and saying, what does the story of the Bible all about? So systematic is the bird's eye level looking down on it. What we're doing in this series, the biblical theology is getting in close in depth, looking at particular passages about what they say. So we're approaching God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in this module and looking at from the whole of the Bible, what does the whole Bible say about God and who he is? So we're going to start actually with an eight-minute video, uh, which gives us a, a really great understanding, if we can understand, the Trinity, uh, which is incomprehensible, but I think it explains it a little better than we do. So we'll watch this video together, and then we'll go from there. Okay, so just we'll break that down here for us real quick, and then we'll... Um move into this is that the definition of the trinity is god exists as one essence and three distinct persons now does anyone have a a proof text for the trinity a text that says here's the trinity and here's how it works and explains it in detail no there's not a proof text for the trinity We see it throughout the Bible, but we even have to use systematic theology to find a theology of the Trinity and how God has revealed himself through the word of God. So we can start here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that says, Hear, O Israel, this is the Shema, or the Shema. This is what would have been recited every day by a good uh, Israeli. Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, that's what Shema means, or Shema, hear, the Lord our God is one. That would have been the, what they would have said, proclaiming a, a monotheistic God, that there's one God. And this we see throughout the Old Testament and the scripture unfolding, we get to Jesus' baptism here. And it says, when Jesus had been baptized, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit, so we got the Holy Spirit, descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, that's God the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Paul ends the end of 2 Corinthians in a way that I like to end our services. A lot of times when I'm preaching is, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. And then we see here just even, I think this is from Luther, but he put this together here for us to just kind of help us to understand a little bit more of the un-understandable and about God, our triune God that we worship. And so tonight, uh, and then this module, we can't exaggerate God. It's the, he's the one thing that can't be exaggerated when you think about him. We can exaggerate so many things, tell our fish stories, things that uh, can be, oh, come on, dude, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, Brad. Not so with God. So we can't even get into even the, to understand him even Right? I mean, there's nothing. We, we can just get a little bit and give us some help into who God is, but he's so vast and so beyond anything that we could ever uh, know. But uh, we want to whet our appetites with a little bit about who God is. And so Zemat's going to talk to us about theology proper. Just going to jump on that real quick. Do you remember Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush experience? You have this bush that's on fire, yet it's not consumed. So scholars have like talked and talked and talked about that for millennia. But end of the day, the conclusion is there's no good analogy for the Godhead. There's no good analogy for the Trinity. Does that make sense? So that's the first thing. So that's why we're not even going to try to give you any analogies or illustrations or descriptions because there's no good ones out there. But uh, my first heading is uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some, some of the unique diversity within the Trinity, right? The beautiful thing about the Trinity, I always love, that there is a unity, but yet it's diverse in the Trinity, right? Um, so here are two examples of the distinct roles within the Trinity. So just think about creation, right? So God the Father, he spoke, right? You have that all over. God the Son is the agent of the spoken word of God. He's the one who put it all into, into play. And then three, the Holy Spirit, he too was active. Genesis 1, 2, it says he was hovering over the waters. So you have the distinctions within the Trinity, but yet they're working as one Lord. Does that make sense? It's just so mind-blowing, but it's wonderful. Uh, redemption, right? So God the Father, he extends mercy and he elects. So he put the plan of salvation together. Number two, God the Son, again, is the agent of salvation, right? He became the God-man. He came down to earth, humbled himself. Uh, and then number three, God the, God the Spirit, he applies the realities of the gospel. He energizes, he convicts us of the realities of the gospel. And so there you have the distinctions of the Trinity working together in distinct, but yet all as one Lord. And it's one of those things too, I know Brad and I have talked about this. We don't want a God that we can fully put in a box. We don't want a God that we can, like, put in a nice, neat box and really kind of wrap around it. We definitely don't want a God who we think that's just slightly smarter than us, slightly wiser than us, slightly almightier than us. We want a God shrouded in mystery, you know. It's, but it's just a wonderful thing that we can even apprehend. The, in theology, they don't really talk a lot about full understanding. They always talk about apprehending because it's amazing that we can just, we can have a correct biblical view of the Trinity. And again, if you, if, you like, if you like church history, I love church history. I mean, first century, third century, fourth century, epic, epic battles for the church on who God is, who the Trinity is. 
And so it's wonderful that we can know that there is one God, that he exists in three persons, and that each person is fully God, co-equal and co-eternal. So, Zach, why do we call this steady theology proper? Unpack that oh. a little bit for us. Yeah, so theology proper, um, it's, it's kind of like uh, Chicago. I, I love Chicago. Chicago proper, they, they're talking about downtown Chicago. And so theology proper, it, they're just meaning the most important thing in theology, and it's always been about who God is and what we think of God. If you look at church history, I mean, the church has never been stronger than its view of God. So this is the most important thing, and they call it theology proper, the study of God. You just said we don't want to use analogies to try to explain God, but you just compared them to Chicago. Yes, I <laughs> so <laughs> I guess there's always some kind of analogy yeah. in Chicago. I'm but simple. Yeah, theology. So the word theo, I mean, that means God, and ology is the steady of. So we say theology proper, we mean God the Father when we say that. So theology is the steady of God, and then all the different things that fall underneath that. And we want to just talk about, okay, if if we can't fully understand God, what can we know? And so we want to ask the question, what is God like? And so you'll see those on your sheet there. We just fill in those together. And even all those things that Zach described God as unknowable, we still know that God is knowable. That's one of the things that we can be sure of is that God has revealed himself to us. Deuteronomy Chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So there is some mystery. There are some secret things about God that we will never comprehend and never understand. And God says, I've made it that way on purpose. Those things belong to me so that you don't think that you are like me, so that you see the distinction between me and you. Some things you will never comprehend about me that only I know. But yet he says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So he says, but I'm not going to keep anything from you that would, take, that would make you able to know me. I'm going to reveal everything you need to know about me that is necessary to have a relationship with me. That's why Jeremiah 9 verse 24 says, if you're going to boast in anything, let him boast in that he knows and that he understands me. That's God talking there. And then God's knowledge of us and how much he thinks about us. I love reading this, this with my kids. This is from the New Living Translation, and it says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God? They outnumber the grains of the sand. And we always go, how many s grains of sand are there? And they're like, oh, there's a ton of them. We take them in the hand and we say, you can't even count those, can you? And yet God has more thoughts towards you and about you than the grains of sand on the seashore, that God is always thinking about you. And that's one thing that we can take to heart as we study theology, that there are some things that are hard to understand, but God is going to give us everything that we need to know to understand him and have relationship with him. And that's why theology is so important, because you can only worship God to the level that you know him. You can only worship God to the level that you know him. I've had the opportunity to sit in on a lot of the interviews for the new church plan in Ankeny, and I found how much I know so many people at Sailorville on a handshake level. 
You know what I mean? Like, hey, how are you? Good to see you. How was your week? And then I get to spend an hour just hearing someone's story, hearing all about them and who they are uh, throughout an entire day on Wednesday for the last four weeks. And it's been a joy to get to know people that I did it that to be on a handshake level. And I'm concerned that many Christians know God on just a handshake level. And they wonder why they aren't growing in him. They wonder why they feel distant from him is because they haven't given themselves to studying who God is and growing in knowledge of him, which will hopefully inspire us to a greater worship of him. So Zach, tell us a little bit more about what God is like. All right. So keep in mind, we had to be very, very selective versus exhaustive. So we decided to go through the the attributes of God here. And again, selective versus exhaustive. So who is God like? We got to start where we got to start. He is independent. God is independent. He is independent to the richest and fullest sense of this word. He exists in a way like nobody else exists. Again, going back to that burning bush experience, right? Uh, Moses is like, so what happens when like Pharaoh says, who sent you? And then God says in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, right? Other translations of that can be is, I am what I am. I will be what I will be. God's existence, his character is determined by himself. He's the great I am. He's absolutely free. He's absolutely unique from all of his creation. So that's where we have to start in his independence. Now, in the theology of independence, it introduces us to a couple of things. And so I'm just going to kind of walk through these things. But you know, it's a small enough crowd, we could actually field questions or if you got something. So, number one, God is self-existent. I love this in theology, they call it the ascidi of God. So, C or ascidi, it just means from himself, right? The quality of the state of being. That's also one of those words you can throw out there and people are like, whoa. I just, yeah, man, I love that. this guy, man, that what was that? Smart. Yeah. <laughs> No, but yeah, God is self-existent, number one. Now, there are three main words that the theologians love using. Number one, he is uncreated. Number two, he is uncaused. I didn't put these up there. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, And then number three, he is underived life in himself. So ultimately, theologians can say that he is the source of life. Does that make sense? Uh, John... 526 says, for as the Father has life in himself. Underived life. That's where the Greek translation is. I love what the ancient creeds talk about God. We don't speak this way, but they talk of God as the supreme, majestic, perfect, pure being. We don't we don't talk like that anymore, but I love that and I want to talk like that. That's appropriate language to talk about God. You know, he's majestic. He's supreme, the perfect being. You know, it's just awesome. Uh, Number two, God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Number two, he is not dependent upon anything for his being. These are so hard for us to wrap our mind around. So we, for Christmas, uh, we got a Science Center uh, pass. And so... I love going there with my boys because we learn all this stuff about science and stuff. But um, 
think of all the things that you and I are dependent upon for life. And we don't even stop to thank God for. Here's, here's the list. And this is from the Science Center. So, <laughs> Number one, our location in the universe. That's so crucial. And we're dependent upon that. God put us there. Our location to the sun. We have a moon. We have an atmosphere. An atmosphere that's rich with air and oxygen. Water. We live on a terrestrial planet. We live on a planet that has tectonic plates that can move and shift. You know, it's just all these wonderful things that God has just put together, and He is outside of all. He's not dependent upon any of that for His existence or His being. Make sense? It's just wonderful. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, is just, you know, even for our own existence, you know, we have a body, we have a heart, we have a brain, we have all this stuff. Um, and I love what Colossians says, you know, he, Christ holds it all together, you know. And so, I mean, the theory, the equation would go, without Christ, poof, there goes life, mm-hmm. right? We are so, like Brad's been saying from the pulpit, we are so needy in the richest and fullest sense of the word. We are so desperate and needy, unlike God, right? Mm-hmm. He's self-sufficient. What would you say to the person, Zach, who says, hey, but didn't God create humans because he was lonely? I mean, we, I've heard that a lot. I heard that taught in Sunday school to me. God was lonely. He needed someone, so he created humans. What would you say to that with yeah. this self-sufficient uh, God? Yeah, we definitely have to go back to the Trinity for that because he had perfect unity, perfect harmony, he was not lonely at all. It, it is, I mean, I, I think you and I were talking about this. Why, so why did God create? Why did God make man? And why did God, you know, redeem man? I guess that's probably the biggest question for us, right? Why did God do this? I mean, I, boy, I don't really have like the best answer, but he did it for, for himself. He did it for his glory. He did it so he can manifest his glory. He did it so that you and I can enjoy him. That's about the only thing I could think of. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's a pretty good answer. I know. But number three, God is eternal. God is eternal. All right, so he has no beginning or end. Anytime you see in the Bible, the Alpha, the Omega, anytime you see in the Bible who was, who is, who is to come, these are all origin words. These are all for you and I, finite, sinful man that's going to die. God is eternal. He's out, you know, he's eternal. He always was. So uh, here's this great quote from A.W. Um, Pink. It says, before space and time, before angels and mankind, heaven and hell, God existed eternally in beauty and in glory. A.W. Pink. Hmm. I like that. I appreciate how he kind of put that together. My key text for God is eternal is uh, Psalm 90, verse 2. And it talks about how God is everlasting to everlasting. Literally what it means in the Hebrew, he's from vanishing point to vanishing point. Mm. So if you can take your mind as far as it can go back to the beginning of the universe, right? Yeah. Guess who was be- beyond that? Eternal one. Eternally. <laughs> God was, the Trinity was. Now, take your mind as far as you can go from the vanishing point of eternity. And we know that eternity, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about eternity. We're going to be there for a long time. And one thing I just thought about was, you know how like when you're down here locked in space and time, you always get frustrated because you can't enjoy, 
you know, your vacation. You're always like locked in the space and time, right? But when we're in heaven, none of that's going to matter. We're going to have all the time in the world to just to sit, sit around and enjoy it, man. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> Love it. So number four, God is immutable. He is unchanging, right? Unlike you and I, we are in a constant state of flux. The, the ancient, we're talking beyond like Plato, beyond Socrates. Uh, I think Parmenides was, was the guy's name. He said, you can never step into the same river twice. Make sense? I mean, you really think about it. We're always in this constant state of flux or becoming. We're always full of potentiality. God has none of that. He's unchanging in his being. In his purpose, he's unchanging uh, in his perfections and in his promises to us. Well, uh, one of the great texts for that, I mean, Malachi 3, 6, you know, I am the Lord, I do not change. Yeah. What a phenomenal passage that is. Um, but then I love James chapter 1, 17. Uh, let me find it here. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What a word picture. You know, think of, think of the light that shifts and moves, right? But what James is telling them, or us, God doesn't have any variations or shifting in shadow. The light can always shine. He doesn't change at all. That's a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, so let me pause here real quick. And so outside of being just really mind-stretching, mind-blowing the independence of God. You know, why is, this, why is this important to us, all right? Acts 17, 28 gives us the answer. For in him, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. In, in theology, they talk about the necessity of God's being for our own being. His sheer existence always precedes our existence right? Another funny way to say it is, he be before we be. His being is so crucial. His supreme, perfect being precedes us. Yeah. That's awesome. a wonderful thing, yeah. Awesome. Well, what else is God like, Zach? All right. Where are we at? Oh, God is spirit. Oh, this is a good one. All right, so God is spirit, John 4, 24, it's kind of the key verse for that. This is a woman at the well, and God says to the lady, this good Samaritan, uh, hey, you know, God's spirit, and we need to worship him in spirit and in truth, right? All right, so three words come to mind when we talk about God as spirit. Number one, he is immaterial, meaning God's spirit. He has no body. He has no composition. There's... We don't have a scale to weigh God. We don't have a, a, you know, a ruler to measure God. He is spirit. He's immaterial. He has no body composition. So that's the first thing. And because of that, in theology, we have, the, you guys have all heard these omnis, right? He is omnipresent. It's kind of a big one. Omni meaning all and then present. He is present. That, that is such a wonderful concept to, to think about that God is present. So, I mean, 
I appreciate you guys are here, but I know you guys are here physically, but some of you guys might not be here, like, <laughs> men like mentally or whatnot. We got some no. videos to wake them up a little bit later. That's on. right, yeah. yeah. Can't wait for that. Uh, but, like, I, I, okay, my wife's in here, so, so, like, a lot of times she's talking to me and I'm present, but sometimes my mind is, like, somewhere else, right? I, I can't relate to that. <laughs> no, I can't. Never, never had to happen before. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. Please expound yeah. for us who don't know what that means. Dig a hole. <laughs> no, but at the end of the day, so God is omnipresent. Now, the yeah. beautiful thing about it is, in theology, they always talk about He is all present. So yeah. He is all present right here in the yeah. fullness of God. I remember reading a tweet from Richard Dawkins, who is uh, anti-God, atheist, and he said. Uh, Okay, Christians, forget about world poverty. Keep praying that God would not make it rain on your picnic. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's true. I shouldn't pray that God's going to not rain on the youth event that we have tonight. But then you think about the omnipresence of God. And it's like, God is not like me. He's not bound by space. He can take care of world hunger and also take care of the picnic that I don't want to get rained out. <laughs> So there isn't this, God isn't limited like we are in that way, that he can do the big stuff and also the really small stuff in our lives as well. So when we come to the Father, we literally can ask him anything because he's able to answer anything at all times, no matter where he is. He's not bound by time and space like we are. Yeah. So, yeah. Second word in God is spirit. They always talk about God is invisible, Yeah. right? We can't see him. I got to look at these. I got to read these verses to you guys. All right. Oh, let me get it. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. You don't need to be a grammarian. You don't need to know Greek for the translation. No one has ever seen God. Uh, John six forty six same thing. No one has seen the Father. That's amazing. He is invisible. Um, and I guess you can. My mind just kind of went to Moses again. So even Moses, you know, uh, Exodus uh, thirty three, he says, "I want to see God," and God says, "I I will have mercy on those who I want to have mercy on." And so God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and all. And all Moses gets to see there is the afterglow of the goodness of God. So he doesn't really get to see God. Does that make sense? He's invisible. First um, Timothy 1.17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. First uh, Timothy 6.16, Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, no, whom no one has seen or can see. Mm -hmm. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. So he's invisible. That's what they talk about when God is spirit. And then the last word that they always talk about, this is one of my personal favorite, is that he is infinite. He is infinite. He is not limited, or he has no limitation. He has no boundaries for himself. Um, one of the things I do love in theology is that, you know, we know that you know, God is, is holy. God is just. He's righteous. But we need to put he is infinitely holy. He is infinitely just. You know, there's no, we, there's no bounds to his, 
fill in the blank attribute. And that's, that's a wonderful thing, incomprehensible thing. All right, let's go. Uh, let's keep moving on this, Zach. Let's go to uh, God. God is sovereign. All right, God we, is sovereign. We are in the deep end here. We are in the absolute deep end. Yeah. <laughs> you want to fill in any time, Brad? All right. Well, <laughs> we got ten minutes in the deep end. It's almost time for the adult swim to be over. So yeah. we got to keep moving here. Uh, all right. So throughout the pages of Scripture, we're talking Genesis to Revelation. There is one theme that is proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation. God is sovereign. He's the king. He's in absolute control. Yeah. And, and what in theology, what they always talk about is that God reigns on high. Just like that song we talked about, you know, he's enthroned. Um, I ran into a couple of good R.C. RC Sproul quotes. Number one, he says, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Mm. Everything is under the absolute control of God and his sovereignty. Um, the other one I ran into was, you know, this is God's favorite attribute. You know, he's sovereign. <laughs> I thought that was good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, again, in theology, for a God to be sovereign, for God to reign on high, three things have to happen. Number one, he has to be all-powerful omnipotent. There you go. There's another great omni word. And we're talking the power to create the heavens and the earth. We're talking the power to raise Christ from the dead. Make sense? This is all powerful God. Number two, he has to be all knowing or omniscient. And if you're English, you have to say omniscience. <laughs> so he has to be all knowing. Um, and again, going back to immutable, there, there is no change in God. God, there's no potential for God to learn. Hmm. Right? There's no surprises for God. He has all knowledge in himself. And then here's the other thing that kind of blows my mind all, all the time, is that not only is God, um, not only God knows all things, he knows every, he knows everything that, he knows all the options, Right? Do you have Coke? Do you have Pepsi? He knows if you choose the Coke, that what it would have been if you would have chose Pepsi. Does that make sense? It's an amazing thing. He even knows even the outcomes that we don't even choose. We don't pick. And then the last thing, uh, the last thing, God has to be, he has to be all-knowing, all-powerful, and then he has to be absolutely free from all, of, from all of this. He has to be outside of space and time. So that's kind of the, the, the three legs that he has to stand on to be sovereign. Now, here's another A.W. Pink quote here. God always does as he pleases. When, where, with whom he pleases. A.W. Pink. I love that quote. So here are just a couple of things here. God is sovereign. He is sovereign in creation. Right? We saw that earlier. Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, all right? The wind, the wave, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of creation obeys his voice alone. So when God wants a snowstorm on a Sunday, <laughs> guess what's going to happen? Snowstorm on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, God is sovereign in history. So the, the Puritans 
love using this word providence. When you read Jonathan Edwards, he always talks about providence and what he's getting at. God is in control of even all the little details. Not only is he in control of all those details, he actually cares for all of those little details. You know, and that's it's just incomprehensible about God. And then last but not least, God is sovereign in salvation. Right? Ephesians chapter 1 3 through, I think, 10 or 11. I mean, it's, it's a great text to kind of chew on and meditate and just not getting into the, the preaching on it. But uh, in the Greek language, it's God chose you before the foundations of the world and wa- watches by himself and for himself. Mm-hmm. This is why we can say this is sovereign grace. He chose you by himself and for himself. It's an amazing yeah. thought process. All right, Zach, I'm going to have you. This is going to be a challenge. Holiness of God oh. in two minutes. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, uh, you got it. God is holy. So there's like one, there's one attribute that's being declared from eternity past, present, and future. It's not that God is love. It's not that God is just. It's not that God is righteous. It's God is holy. Does that make sense? Isaiah 6 is kind of the base text for that. These seraphim are crying out, holy, 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 right? Um, So there's two main concepts. Um, The Hebrew word is kadash, and the Greek word is hagias, and they both mean he's distinct. They both mean that he is separate. They both mean that he is, is sacred. So the first concept in the holiness of God is that he is distinct and separate from us. Number two, um... The second idea in the holiness of God is that it's his moral perfection. He's sinless. There's no blemish. There's no flaw. He's perfect in decision and in judgment. Sinclair Ferguson said, you know, if we could see God without disintegrating, we would see perfect purity. We don't, we don't have categories. We don't have, we don't have anything for that. I mean, that's an amazing, yeah. amazing concept. Now, the things that you mentioned so far, Zach, God's independence, he's spirit, he's sovereign, those are all attributes of God that are ones that belong to him alone, right? But holiness is one of the attributes of God's that can also be belong to us, right? So we're called to grow in holiness. We're called to be like God in this way. Um, but all those others are what make God God and the essence of who he is, is is holy, set apart, but he also calls us as his people to be holy people yeah. too, right? So there are some attributes of God that that are belong to him alone, and there's some that uh, we also can grow in, although not perfectly. Like he has all these things perfect all the time. All the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the last two there, we'll just go through those quickly, uh, that God is jealous. That is that God is not jealous for our stuff, but he's jealous for the praise that is due him, for the loyalty of his people. Uh, and then lastly there, that God is wrathful. Now, God has an extreme hatred for sin. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God remains, or the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. And John 3.36 says that the wrath of God remains on those who do not obey him. And a lot of people are disturbed by the wrath of God, aren't we? I mean, a lot of people don't 
like the wrath of God. Maybe even yourself have wrestled through the wrath of God. I don't really like this idea that God is angry. And oftentimes we think, well, what's the opposite of wrath? Anger, right? We would say, well, love would be the opposite of anger or wrath. But actually, uh, J.D. Greer points out to us that the opposite of hate is not love. It's indifference. And so if we don't have a God that gets angry, if we don't have a God that has a hatred for sin, we have a, a God that doesn't really care about anything. So in order to love something, there's got to be stuff that you absolutely hate that would rob and would hinder that love. So a lot of people say, though, too, that God is a God of wrath. That's only in the Old Testament. Why well, I would say, have you read Revelation? There's still a lot of wrath to come. I mean, this is the same God all throughout the scriptures. That's one of the things about God is not only is he loving, but he's wrathful. And we'll close with this, and then we want to respond in a song. Um, I was in New York City at Times Square, and uh, we sat down, and there's all these people that were drawing caricatures of people, right? where you walk over and they airbrush a picture of you and they take features about you that stick out and they really try to exploit exploit those features. It's not actually an accurate picture of who you are. It's an artist's depiction of what they want to bring out about you. And I was sitting there waiting to see what this artist was going to bring about me and he turned it around and it it was a nice looking picture but it didn't look anything like me. And in fact, one of my friends said, that looks like Tiger Woods. Now, if you look at me, I don't look anything like Tiger Woods, right? And so it, we, I think what we want to be careful with and what we want to do is let's let God be God and how he's revealed us, himself to us in his word. Let's not try to make a character of here's the only the things I want to emphasize about God and make a picture of him how I want to view him. But to look at God and say, into his word and say, how does God reveal himself to me in his word and how do I come and humble myself in relation to that and see that this is the God that has called me not because he needs me. He didn't create me because he benefits from me, but he invited us into the relationship of the Trinity to experience this triune God and to live for his glory and to live from that design. So we'll wrap it up here tonight. I want to thank you, brother. Looking forward to some more time with you. Uh, but on the back of your sheet there, you see the lyrics for Holy, Holy, Holy. What a great uh, Trinitarian hymn. Zach is multi-talented, and he's going to play the guitar here. Okay. So if you got your lyrics there, bring those out. Let's stand together, and we'll close in this song, and then we'll be dismissed.